1: Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: When Tumulty, and he's the president's secretary, tried to talk to Woodrow Wilson about the news from Queenstown, Ireland, where the dead were being buried in mass graves, Wilson could not bear it. If he were to stop and think about them, he said, I should see red in everything, and I am afraid of that when I am called upon to act.
1: For your land and heart. And the trace of Orlando's eyes, right. just like watching birds across the Delaware, says the flicking, we've the ride.
0: July 1914, a story, danger being the log of Captain John Sirius, appeared in the Strand magazine in the United Kingdom. It envisioned Britain being starved into submission by eight boats of a particular type that was particularly scary to Brits and almost everyone at the time, the submarine. The underwater menace, came from a fictional country called Norland. Norland was on the continent of Europe, but almost everyone could see through the veil. It was a depiction of Germany. And the story is told from the point of view of Captain Sirius, a submarine commander in the Navy of Norland. Britain and Norland in this fictional universe are at loggerheads and go to war. Norland should probably capitulate to the British demands because it's much smaller. But Sirius convinces his nation's king that there is another way. British forces occupy Norland's ports. But Captain Sirius and his eight submarines hunt down merchant shipments shipments headed for Britain. This is a new tactic, and one the Royal Navy, despite its size, is powerless to combat. Soon. Britain, in this story, by by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Soon Britain is close to starvation. But Norland, which is linked to mainland Europe, is not blocked, though its ports are, and it's well supplied. Here's what he writes. In the great towns of Britain, starving crowds clamored for bread before municipal offices and public officials everywhere were attacked and often murdered by frantic mobs, composed largely of desperate women who had seen their infants perish before their eyes. Sirius narrates this. In a matter of weeks, the British have agreed to an armistice. Sirius has won, and the submarine has arrived. Now, The Strand published the story along with an accompanying piece with a response by naval experts. According to Daniel Stashower's Conan Doyle biography, The Teller of Tales, they praised the story's vision. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has placed his finger on the neurologic nerve center of the British Empire, the precarious arrival of our food supply, so said one of the naval experts. This was in nineteen fourteen, just as hostilities were ramping up, but as often can be the case with fictionalized versions of things, the wrong people must have been reading. The British did not really advance their submarine service greatly. They did have a fleet of hundreds of boats, but Well, Germany had a small amount, but a German expert was reading and was able to convince his country to accelerate the program. This from Patricia O'Toole's book on Woodrow Wilson and talks a lot about the events around World War II. Her book is called The Moralist. Now, I'm going to have Patricia O'Toole on the regular My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. So I figured I'd talk a bit about this subject from her book. On the Premium Cast. Thanks so much for subscribing to the extra podcast that you get from the Premium Cast. Thanks for supporting the show. Germany informed Britain that from February 18th onward, and this is in 1915, it would consider the waters around the British Isles a war zone. All enemy merchant vessels sighted therein would be liable to destruction without warning. Neutral vessels would also be in danger because of the deceptive use they said of neutral flags the announcement shocked the sensibilities of believers in believers in central civilized naval warfare the laws of which had long required an attacker to attempt to save the lives of a merchant ship's crew and passengers before blowing it up submarine warfare had rendered the old laws obsolete because for a submarine to show itself in advance of an attack, that would deprive the submarine of one of its main tactical advantages and open it up. Submarines were very vulnerable uh, by the air or by enemy gunners if they were seen. Their hulls really weren't that strong and could be pounded by the guns on, a, on an enemy ship. The Germans established this new war zone as a reprisal for Britain's violation of another law of naval warfare, the law governing blockades. The old rules required a blockading navy to station its troops just near the enemy's coast and to maintain a flotilla large enough to prevent access to the enemy's ports. The old rules also allowed a blockading navy to search merchant ships and seize contraband within the blockade zone, but not on the high seas and the British had ruled the entire North Sea in its zone of blockade. Alfred von Tirpitz, Secretary of the German Navy, turned his wrath on the United States for not protesting England's closing of the North Sea to neutral ships. England wants to starve us. We can play the same game.
1: As they fought for independence, you and I and our dependents must preserve democracy. In God of thought we'll trust will we'll tell the world it simply has to be just like the land, west, so we'll the,
0: the idea of using submarines, as we said earlier to starve England to submission came from a surprising source, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, already well known for his Sherlock Holmes series, Conan Doyle was as British as it was possible to be. He was knighted in 1902, son of an Irishman, grew up in Scotland, spent most of his life in England. Doyle imagined a war in which the Royal Navy defeated the German Grand Fleet, but Germany ultimately defeated England with unrelenting submarine attacks. A German naval officer who read the story shared it with his supervisors, and before long, the notion that England could be broken with a handful of submarines was an article of faith among German naval strategists. Britain was more relieved than alarmed by the new war zone. It, too, was a violation of the blockade rules. So Britain was no longer the only belligerent acting with flagrant disregard for the laws of naval warfare. And Germany's violation invited even more disdain than Britain's because the submarine posed a deadly threat to noncombatants. Wilson and his cabinet immediately realized that if German submarines began sinking American ships or ships carrying American passengers, the United States might have to declare war. Washington advised Berlin that the German government would be held to a strict accountability for American deaths caused by German submarines. Repelled by the idea of using starvation as a weapon, the United States asked Britain to permit food to be shipped to Germany's civilian population. If Germany would promise not to divert any of it to its army if the food went only to civilians the United States offered it. Well, in doing so, they had a problem, because the Allies already and were on board of blocking anything going to Germany. Britain and France informed the United States that Germany's submarine war and merchant ships forced them to block commodities of any kind from reaching or leaving Germany. Henceforth, all ships with cargoes presumed to be going to or from Germany, would be liable to search. Although Britain and France informed the United States that interdictions would be carried out with no risk to the ships or the lives of the civilians on board. Wilson wrote to his friend Mary that the tension was like a fever, and no one who did not sit here with me daily, each anxious 24 hours through, could possibly realize the constant strain. That's something to think about. We see history with hindsight. We judge presidential actions from where we are now. But think about that, the constant uh, flow of ships going across the Atlantic, the importance of shipping and trade at that time, being choked off by, by a few German submarines, not more than 400 presenting a threat to the entire Atlantic Ocean and tens of thousands of ships. 5,000 ships during World War I would be sunk by just 300 boats. Germany would lose about half their fleet, a lot of it in the later part of the war. But they'd do quite a bit of damage. Once again, Wilson complained of feeling disconnected from his real self. He was also anxious. Colonel House's presence in London might send the wrong message. The British may not want Colonel House, as his ambassador, to leave for Berlin until they felt that they were winning on the battlefield. And the president feared that the German government would then see the colonels as England's envoy rather than his advisor, the advisor to the president of the United States. Wilson urged House to put the point squarely to Britain, and move on. House wasn't exactly following the direct orders of Wilson. This is one of the things that's going to cause tremendous strain and tension between the two, and one of the reasons Wilson is going to be convinced later that he needs to go to Europe himself. House explains that Britain does not so much desire military advantage before I go to Germany, but that there should neither be such a great disadvantage as now. He counseled patience. And he stayed in England for three more weeks. Though he had not opened any door to peace, he told Wilson that he had put everything in London in an admirable shape. The American ambassador to Britain was shocked by the proposal to send food to Germany. The English did not doubt America's good faith, But they now regarded the Americans as simpletons, playing into Germany's hand. The British were determined to defeat the Germans by starving them. If we are defeated, they told the Americans, it'll be worse with us than it can be with Germany if she is defeated. The German people will, in any event, will remain on land that can practically feed them. We, if Germany should win, would have our overseas dominions cut off. And we should be an island people without the means of self-support. That is why we prefer to die before disaster, if need be, rather than after. This was the precarious situation of peace that Wilson found himself in. The whole development of this new weapon, the submarine, the idea had been around for a while. There's that famous turtle of Revolutionary War fame where the guy's in a little egg-shaped boat with a propeller. It wasn't used in any kind of offensive action, but it was a nice try. Some naval experts say the thing would would tip over if it was ever tried to be used. But a few developments were needed to make a submarine truly practical. The first thing is you need torpedoes because these early ideas of submarines is that these vessels could go either glass or metal or wood and go under the surface and maybe drill holes in a ship like the turtle was supposed to do, or place explosives or fire into ships. They were all impractical. But um, with the invention of the Whitehead torpedo right after the Civil War, you had the first steps that something like this could work. And in 1878, a Turkish ship during the Russo-Turkish War is sunk by Russian torpedo boats. Now, these are not submarines, but they're using that concept of the torpedo, a weapon that can be shot under the water. Then you have various developments... Oddly enough, most of the invention of the submarine, which would be used to great effect against Great Britain, would occur in Great Britain. <laughs> George Garrett, industrialist financier Thorsten Nordenfeldt, they create the basic designs for submarines. There's a couple other advances in submarines in France as well. Nordenfeldt three in 1887 was 30.5 meters long and 6 meters wide, weighs 100 tons, can carry a crew of 7, had a maximum surface speed of 6 knots and a maximum speed of 4 knots while submerged. It's able to fire a torpedo. What you start to see is electric power also being applied, and this is another facet that's needed to really get the submarine going. And the USS Holland was commissioned into the United States Navy in 1900. First usable submarine. As the war geared up, the Germans and the British believed that big naval battles would be fought with big ships, like the HMS Dreadnought and its sisters. Submarines would be limited probably to coastal defense, preventing blockades by enemy ships, and serving as lookouts. At the start of World War I, the Royal Navy had the world's largest submarine service by a considerable margin, with 74 boats, of which 15 were ocean-going, and the rest capable of coastal patrols. A new class, built in 1907 to 1910, were designed to be propelled by diesel motors on the surface. The Germans were slower to recognize the importance of the new weapon. At the start of World War I, Germany had 20 submarines, with more under construction. The ambassador of Germany to the United States, Bernstoff, did something on his own volition. He took out ad space in several newspapers with his own money to remind Americans of the hazard in the war zone around Britain. His first notice, signed by the Imperial German Embassy and dated April 22nd, at first appeared in print on Saturday, May 1st. The Lusitania's captain, William T. Turner, appreciated the risks. He was the one who had raised the American flag and raced east across the Irish Channel in February when the president's own advisor, Colonel House, was aboard the ship. Captain Turner had made several crossings since, and when his new passengers mentioned the German warnings in the papers, Turner easily restored their serenity. The Royal Navy was on patrol and would alert him by wireless if any U-boats were spotted near the Lusitania's course. And submarines poked along at 9 knots an hour underwater, 18 on the surface. The Lusitania, which cruised at 21 knots, could do at least 23. Skate away. The Times of London derided Bernstorff's warning as an attempt to scare Americans away from British liners and guessed that had been inspired by the failure of the German submarine campaign. So far, 99.7% of the 16,190 merchant ships going to and from the British Isles, had eluded the U-boats. Think about that, by the way, the, uh, the amount of traffic going back and forth. I really liken, in an understanding of World War I, I liken it to thinking about the Internet today and thinking about not just the Internet but also the delivery of parcels to us and how important that is in our daily lives and if somehow that were interrupted by a threat it's something that we'd certainly be concerned about, and consequences could be dire if not addressed and That's what Wilson and the United States, even though neutral, was dealing with five days into its voyage. The Lusitania's wireless received word that submarines had been spotted near Fastnet Rock, It's off the tip of the Irish coast. OK, Captain Turner steered wide of Fastnet and ordered the lifeboat stocked and swung out. The next afternoon at 2:10, two lookouts spotted a streak of white racing towards the ship's starboard side. Their shouts of warning were instantaneous, but too late. Watching from the deck of U-boat 20, which had fired the torpedo, Lieutenant Commander Walter Schweiger saw two explosions, walls of flame, and immense clouds of black smoke. In no time the ship listed heavily to starboard. The bow went under, and Schweiger guessed that the whole of it would be gone within minutes. He imagined the chaos on deck and watched as several lifeboats land, bow first, and then capsized. Schweiger took his submarine down, and at 2.30 p.m., when the Lusitania slipped beneath the waves, that's 20 minutes after it's hit, U-Boat 20 was turning away from the scene. The American embassy in London learned of the disaster at 4 o'clock. The first report said no lives had been lost. So the ambassador's household staff carried on with preparation for the day's big event, dinner in honor of Colonel House, who was visiting. By the time the ambassador left his desk, he knew the death toll had exceeded 1,000. In Washington, it was lunchtime. A reporter intercepted Bryan, who was now Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, at a hotel to share a bare-bones bulletin. A White House secretary gave the same news to Wilson, who canceled a round of golf to await for more news. When no news came, the president took a long automobile ride to try to calm his nerves. He learned of the dimensions of the tragedy at 8 o'clock just after he returned. Shaken, he went into his study for a few minutes. Then stole out of the White House for a
2: long walk alone in the rain. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The ambassador cabled Washington to say that Britain's senior officials— We're refraining from public comment out of courtesy, but privately saying that the United States must declare war or lose the respect of the civilized world. If the United States joined the Allies, the Allies would soon triumph, and the United States would play a leading part in reorganizing the world, the ambassador transmitted to Washington. But if Washington turned the other cheek, the United States will have no voice or influence in settling the war or in what follows for a long time to come. Colonel House, also in London, files a brief and urges Wilson to act soon. In this, Woodrow Wilson was of his own mind and also of the mind of a great many in America, particularly the southern western parts of America. Wilson ignored them and nearly everyone else. Cabinet members who wanted to see him were turned away. The White House made no comment on the Lusitania for more than 24 hours, and the first word, which came from Tumulty, said, only that the president keenly felt the gravity of the situation and was considering very earnestly but very calmly the right course of action to pursue. When Tumulty, and he's the president's secretary, tried to talk to Woodrow Wilson about the news from Queenstown, Ireland, where the dead were being buried in mass graves, Wilson could not bear it. If he were to stop and think about them, he said, I should see red in everything, and I am afraid of that when I am called upon to act. I think you've got to put in perspective with the Lusitania disaster how disaster events are covered today on the TV news and how emotional we feel in the first few minutes, then hours, and even days after such an event. And it's often said that the we should, you know, put off discussions. And that's, that's made fun of sometimes, particularly with the gun debate, you know, put up, put off discussions while the, the action's hot. And, uh, but Wilson is trying to do this for himself, uh, to take himself away from this to, to, and he has the ability to do this, although at great strain to himself. As I think, uh, Patricia O'Toole's book, which by the way, I highly recommend, look out for the interview that I'll have with her. But, I mean, it's a really good book. Uh, Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made, The Moralist by Patricia O'Toole. She's the author of Five of Hearts and When Trumpets Call, Theodore Roosevelt, After the White House. Five of Hearts is about the historian Henry Adams. Really great uh, book. I'm even learning some things, and I, I do study Wilson a lot, and I know a lot about it, but I'm even learning some things that I uh, didn't quite know. It takes some time, but eventually it's learned that there were 128 Americans among the 1,198 victims. The Eastern press in the United States was demanding retribution, while the Wilson administration seemed to be waiting for tempers to cool. The German ambassador Bernstoff visits Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan and expresses his regret at the loss of so many American lives. Bryan, who's you know, very ambivalent about the situation and is a pacifist and is against war, um, lamented that Germany had refused to sign a cooling-off treaty that he had proposed. It would have given the two nations a year to settle the Lusitania question. Reporting the conversation to Berlin, Bernstorff urged his government to make a move towards some kind of negotiation. For others in England, the timing of the Lusitania's departure and the ads that Ambassador Bernstorff had taken out in U.S. newspapers seemed a little too convenient. As Patricia O'Toole writes, the available evidence suggests otherwise. For one thing, it's not clear that there was a plan to sink the Lusitania. The German admiral's written orders to submarine commanders made no mention of passenger ships, an omission that might well have been deliberate, as it would allow German Germany to claim that didn't have those plans. They might have given them secretly, verbally to the officers. Bernstoff himself, the ambassador, regarded the attack as a monumental blunder. American anger over the instant incident instantly destroyed all hope that Germany might win the propaganda war in the United States. And finally, two of the victims have been sons of Bernstorff's friends, and he had sent each of them off with a letter of introduction. Had he written the letters with foreknowledge of the Lusitania's fate, he told an acquaintance, he would deserve to be hanged from the nearest lamppost. From Berlin, the British ambassador forwarded a foreign office statement expressing sympathy for American lives lost, but placing the blame squarely on the British for the blockade that had driven Germany to unleash the submarine and for their heedlessness in carrying passengers and munitions on the same ship. Privately, German officials reacted with emotions ranging from revulsion and disbelief to pride and cold resignation. As one wrote, The scene of war is no golf links. The ships, belligerent powers, no pleasure palaces. The sinking of the Lusitania was, for us, a military necessity. And it's right after this that even though we're dealing with an earlier time and it's not instant TV news, it shows you that presidents can still make a gaffe. On Sunday, May 9th, Wilson emerges from a round of golf and tries to assure the country that war was not imminent. On Monday, he keeps a long-scheduled date to address several thousand newly naturalized citizens in Philadelphia. Jimmy Starling, a Secret Service agent, seated behind the president, could see that he was uncharacteristically nervous, squirming, rocking his heels, unable to keep his hands still. It seemed to Starling that Wilson relaxed once he realized that the crowd was with him. But what happened next suggests that a president was still rattled. There is such a thing as a man being too proud to fight, Wilson said. There is such a thing as a nation being so right that it does not need to convince others by force that it is right. Too Proud to Fight would soon be a one-page headline across the country. Wilson. Wilson paid dearly for those words. There had been no criticism when he used a phrase, there is something so much greater to do than fight. And Wilson often paraphrased himself, and this one came out, too proud to fight. There had been no criticism when he made the first statement, but... With the sinking of the Lusitania, American indifference to the slaughter in Europe gave way to fear. And if most Americans did not want to go to war, neither did they want their president to take the blow with only a whimper. And so, by May 13th, Wilson is writing an official note to Germany, saying that the United States had observed these American attacks on sea, at sea with growing concern, distress, and amazement. The United States would continue holding Germany to a strict accountability for any infringement. The United States expected more than reparations and regrets. It wanted Germany to disavow its attack on neutral citizens, take measures to prevent recurrences. And Germany should not expect the U.S. government to omit any word or any act necessary to protect the rights of the United States and its citizens. A suggestion from William Jennings Bryan to add one more paragraph to the note talking about the long history of friendship between the United States and Germany was rejected. And what of Sir Arthur Codan Toyle? Here was his statement uh, when people started to realize that the Germans were maybe following his story in 1915. I need hardly say that it's very painful to me to think that anything I have written should be turned against my own country. The object of the story was to warn the public of a possible danger, which I saw overhanging this country, how to avoid that danger. In the story, I placed the incidents of submarine blockade some years hence. It was a story of the future, and my reason was that after studying the subject, I concluded that the submarine at present was not capable of the result which I depicted. But it is still my opinion that if this war had been delayed for five years, and if this submarine during that time had been improving as rapidly as it's done in the past, Engel would have been placed in a most serious position, exactly as outlined in the story. Well, it turned out that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was wrong, and that eventual developments, particularly as you get to the year that he's writing about, and then 1916 and 1917 the submarine would become increasingly deadly. Thanks for listening.
1: Looking backward through the ages, we can read on history's pages, the famous men have done. We are told of great commanders, Wellington Sanders, and Alexander, and of the battles they have won. Take our own great revolution that began our evolution, Washington, and won his fame. Today, across the sea, they're making history, the Yankee spirit still remains the same. Just like Washington, Washington crossed the tail away, the so is the king crossed rise. As they followed after George and Zero Valley for our boys will break that line. It's for your land and mine, and the sake of all mankind. Just like watching girls across the jail of where, they're will cross the ride. Right. We won the soul of honor, we fight heroes of the past. Like the ones who've gone before them to the native land that bore them, they were faithful to the last. As they fought for independence, you and I and our descendants must preserve democracy. In God, a thought we'll trust, our thought shall never rest. We'll tell the world it simply has to be... Just like what we across the Delaware, so we will planting cross the Rhine. As they follow after George and dear old Valleyport, our boys north, will break and lie. It's for your land and my land, and the sake of all mankind. Should all the great and and never brought God, and the days of old Lang Syne Just like what we learned from the Delaware and Perkins were brought for our